Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you this morning. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Central. Uh, We're wrapping up this series today. It's our first series of this new year of 2020, and it's a series uh, that we've been talking about vision and mission and direction for our church. This is probably true for you. Each of us believe that our lives have some sort of meaning or purpose or value, that our lives aren't just about you know, sucking in air for however many years, uh, but we believe that there's something more to our life, to our existence, that we have some sort of purpose. I, I think the thing that makes this difficult is we live in this world of competing ideas, where different things are constantly vying for our attention and our time and our resources and our priority. There are these constant distractions and this noise. I read an article from Psychology Today that said in the 70s, people experienced or were exposed to about 500 messages a day. Maybe that's advertising, maybe it's uh, brand things, who knows, but about 500 a day. Today, they say that we are exposed to an excess of 5,000 messages a day. That's a lot of noise, a lot of distraction. A lot of things that can keep us from understanding or seeing or staying on focus, on mission, on purpose. And you've all had those days where it doesn't matter what you do, you just cannot stay focused, right? Like it seems like every task you do gets interrupted, every thought you try to have, you have all these other distracting thoughts come in, and your whole day uh, just kind of seems like something like that that's unfolding time and time again. And, And sometimes that can be funny. Uh, I had a parent who sent me uh, a text conversation that she had with her son recently uh, because she was having one of those days, and I think she shared that message with me, and I have it for you today. With her son, Jacob, sending her a text, where are you? She responds, on my way home from Meyer. I'll be home shortly. Makes sense. Seems like like a normal conversation. She gets a text from Jacob that says, Mom, and she says, what? He responds, I came to Meyer with you. And she says, shoot. Be right there. Like, whether you have a kid or not, you've had one of those days, right? Whether you're a parent or you're a kid or you're a student or whoever you are, you've had one of those days. And those things can be funny. But there's also this element, this deep desire that each one of us have to not miss the main thing. We don't want those distractions, those noise to interrupt our main thing. We want to live lives where we can be focused on that main thing. Because I think we all have this fear somewhere inside of us that someday, and I think for some of you, that someday season is unfolding right in front of you. But we have this fear that someday we'll look back over our lives and we'll see the things that we gave ourselves to and we'll wish that we could rewind and press the redo button. We have this fear that when we see what we gave our time and our energy, our emotion and our money to, we'll wish that we could have a do-over. Like you all know the person uh, who, who works and works and works and works and they give themselves to their work and at some point they look back and they realize how they sacrificed their family along the way. Or or someone's striving for this promotion and they're working hard and eventually they get this promotion and then they look back and see the people at their work they had to step over, step on, to hurt, to get that promotion. 
Or maybe for students, you're fighting for this, these grades or to make this team or this band or something, and you're working hard, and you get the grades, you, you make the team, but you reflect and you see all these friends that were around you that you neglected, all these relationships that you left undone. Or, and I think this one's for all of us, we can be surrounded by family and friends who care about us and love us, and yet we miss it because we're consumed by this piece of technology that's in our pocket. And none of those things are bad. Work is not bad. Work is very good and necessary. Promotions are great. Uh, Getting good grades, making the team are admirable and things that we should strive for. Technology is such a useful and helpful tool. There could have been a lot of other distractions that I named that are more harmful or, or, or more hurtful in our lives and for our families. But yet, we can live these lives where that noise and that distraction, even good things, can keep us from staying focused on our mission, or that purpose. And we so badly, we so badly don't want to miss that main mission. And I think of faith. Does this happen in faith? Is it possible that, that in the realms of faith that we can show up to church and we can, we can attend church and we can do all these good things, serve and tithe and all of that, and yet still miss it? And how do we live our lives in a way where we don't miss the main thing? The good news for us is that we aren't the first people to wrestle with these things and ask these questions. In fact, there was a group of people who were closest to Jesus that still struggled with this idea of distractions. And we're going to look at their story today. It's found in the Gospel of John. Uh, And John's Gospel is, is interesting We have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, in their writing, they're different, but there's a lot of similarities. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to be more focused in their writing on what happened. In their Gospels, it seems that their focus is on what happened. Where John, who was an eyewitness uh, to Jesus' life, he saw Jesus' ministry right with his own eyes. But he writes this Gospel many years later, after he's had a lot of time to think and reflect. And where Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem focused on what happened, John's focus is more on what do those things that happened mean? Why did those things happen? And so as we read John's gospel, the better question for us to ask is not what is happening here, but what do these things that are happening mean? Or why did John choose to include these things in his gospel? And our story today comes on the heels of Jesus' crucifixion. And this Jesus movement is kind of a curious thing for us. Because Jesus comes onto the scene, and he starts doing all of these things. Jesus comes onto the scene, and he starts healing people, and feeding people, and and he begins uh, to cast out demons. And there's people, he gives them their sight, who are blind, or who are deaf, and, and, and he gives them their hearing. He has all of these teachings about loving your enemies and forgiving people. And what's even more curious about Jesus is the people that this message of hope seems to be for. The outcasts, the downtrodden, the forgotten, the marginalized. And as Jesus is going and doing all of these things, people begin to wonder, hey, is this the Messiah? Is this Jesus guy? Is this the Messiah who's going to come and is going to free us from this Roman oppression and is going to set the Israelites back on top? 
And they're getting more and more curious. And as Jesus is going and healing and feeding and teaching, even raising people from the dead, there's this excitement and this energy that's building and and crowds are flocking and more and more people are coming. And you can sense the energy building and building and building. And then a funny thing happens. He dies. At maybe the height of Jesus' ministry and at the height of this Jesus movement, Jesus, the one who was their hope, the one who they thought was the Messiah, was put to death by the government. And all of the energy that was in the air is gone. Any wind that was in their sails has just vanished. And people just kind of start to go home. I can imagine them standing around one another and kind of looking around confused and and thinking to themselves, wait, was that it? I didn't think it was going to end like that. And this is where our story picks up. Because after Jesus is crucified and put in a tomb, three days later, there are some women on the first day of the week who go to the tomb. They're going to take care of his body. And when they get there, this funny thing happened. See, the stone was rolled away, and when they looked inside... They didn't see Jesus' body. And they didn't know what to make of it. They were confused, a little fearful. And so they ran back and they told the disciples, hey, look, we were just at the tomb. We saw them put Jesus' body in here. We can't find his body. And that's where we're picking up today in John chapter 20, starting at verse 3. It says, So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. As a little side note, a lot of scholars think that, uh, that John, who is writing this, this uh, gospel, when he mentions the other disciple, a lot of scholars think that that's John. John writing himself into the story. And they think that for a lot of reasons. I personally think that because of this reason right here. That John goes out of his way to not help the story, to point out for all of history that he is faster than Peter. Like, he go, he, like there's, this is, has nothing to do with the story at all, and he even mentions it two more times. Just, hey, by the way, Peter and I were running, and if you're wondering, I'm a little bit faster than Peter. So he gets to the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Peter, Simon Peter, who came along behind him, because John 1, went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. And if we stop right there, it can be easy for us to think, oh, they believed. They believed in the resurrection. But what we will read and what we'll find out here in just a second is it's not that they believed in the resurrection, but in this moment, they believed that what the women had told them was true, that the body was gone. And as we keep reading, it says, They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is the line I can't get past. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. They come to this tomb and there's no body. And they think, what in the world's happening here? And they don't know what to make of it, and so they go home. In almost every one of the Gospels, there's some kind of account like that. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, I don't have this on the slides, uh, but it's the same account, and it says this about Peter. It says, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. And this is interesting to us. Because these disciples had been with Jesus. 
They had seen Jesus teach. They had heard Jesus say, hey, I'm going to suffer and die, and then I will rise again. And yet, in the midst, in the face of that reality, they're perplexed. They can't make sense of what's happening. And you wonder, how can these disciples who had heard this from Jesus, who had been with Jesus, who were closest to Jesus, how, how did this happen? How didn't they know what was happening right in front of them? I think these disciples are a lot like you and me. And they knew the realities of life. You, you're alive, and then you're dead. And when you're alive, you're alive. But when you're dead, you're dead. And for the most part, people who are dead stay dead. See, even in some of the accounts, when disciples will experience or encounter Jesus after he has risen, they don't recognize him at first. And Jesus has to reveal himself to them. And it's like they were so focused on who they thought Jesus was supposed to be, what they thought a Messiah was supposed to be like. They had gotten caught up in all of these other things that they missed who Jesus really was. They missed what Jesus was trying to do. How is it that the people who were closest to Jesus still missed the main thing? The good news for the disciples and the good news for us is this story doesn't end with them being confused and perplexed. Because the reality is that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And it's this moment that launches Christianity. It's Jesus' resurrection that launches the Jesus, the Christianity movement. It's not his teaching. It wasn't his healings or his miracles. It wasn't even, and this is hard for us sometimes, it wasn't even his death that launched Christianity. Because like we just said, all of those things happened and there was excitement. And then when he died, they went home. And it's not that his teachings or his miracles or the things that he did or his death are unimportant. Not at all. But without the resurrection, those works of Jesus, that ministry, those aspects of his life are incomplete without the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And as a little bit of a side note, I have, I've had people sometimes ask me, like, well, how do we know that the resurrection actually happened? How do we know that, you know, it, that they weren't just saying these things? And I think it's a, it's a valid question to ask. And for me, I usually answer those type of questions uh, with two examples uh, that for me have helped. The first is this. There is a group of people who were eyewitnesses accounts to Jesus' resurrection. And these, these, these individuals, these men and women, believed so strongly that the resurrection actually happened that they were willing to risk it all. That I don't believe in the resurrection just because I can read it in a book but I believe it because there are these people who had nothing to gain from lying about Jesus' resurrection, but had everything to lose. And for many of them, they lost it all. They were persecuted and killed because they believed so strongly that the resurrection actually happened. That's one of the reasons that I, that I can take confidence that this is a, a real thing, a true thing. The other one uh, is that there's this guy in the Bible named James. And James is, be, is famous for being known as the brother of Jesus. And what's interesting about James is, at first, he wasn't really on board with this whole Jesus is the Messiah thing. And it's hard to blame him, because he was Jesus' brother. I can imagine growing up, you know, James would come to Mary and say, hey, Jesus hit me. And Mary would look at Jesus, and he was like, 
And like, what do you do if you're James? Like, well, Jesus isn't going to lie. But if you have a brother or you have a sister, what would that sibling have to do to convince you that they were the Messiah? Because that's what James was confronted with. And it wasn't his teachings. It wasn't his miracles. But for James, when he saw his brother die and then rise again, in that resurrection, it was enough for James to say, you know what? Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is the Messiah. And James goes on to be one of the early leaders of the church. Goes on to write the book of James in the New Testament. See, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And it's so important for you and for me and for our church that we focus on this reality, that we make this our main thing, that we don't miss this. So what does this have to do with what we're talking about? Like, great, Tyler, this is a great message. You're about 60 days too early for Easter. What does this have to do with a series on mission and vision and direction for our church? Well, if you've been around for a little while, and if you're new, this is great because we'll kind of catch you up. You've probably heard this journey that our church has been on called Growing Together. Growing Together is really uh, this, this journey we've been on, this partnership we've had with the Fuller Youth Institute. As we've looked at some of the realities uh, of faith and, and, and church in our nation, where young people seem to be walking away from faith, hanging up their cleats and staying away. And in essence, what growing together has been all about is this recognition that we need to be a church that is intergenerational. That we need our young people to be engaged and we need our older people to be engaged. That we have an opportunity to grow together, that our young people need to be willing to listen to the experience and the wisdom of our older people. But our older people also need to have the humility to listen and learn from the passion and the energy and the perspective of our younger people. That without both, we cannot be the church that God is calling us to be. And so we've done several things with this growing together. You may remember we did a growing together night. About a year and a half ago, we did an all-church assessment. Uh, last May, Pastor Rob did a Growing Together series. Uh, we, we did a, um, we've conducted listening groups. We've done all of these things as part of this journey uh, in partnership with the Fuller Youth Institute. And they've studied churches all across the country. And what's curious is, is they found these, these six priorities, what they call these six core commitments of churches who seem to be doing this well of churches who are getting this intergenerational thing done correctly. And they have these six core commitments, and we have this wheel. It may look familiar to some of you. We've used it before, and again, if you've forgotten or you're new, this is great because we can really quick catch you up. There's these six core commitments. The first one is the core commitment of keychain leadership. What this means is that rather than centralizing power and decision-making, as a church, we want to learn to pass off keys to young people to give them keys to leadership and decision-making that they can be enfolded into that process for our church. The second one is this core commitment of empathy today. What we say is empathize with today's young people. The, the quote I love when we're thinking about this, this empathy thing, is that we've all been high schoolers before, but none of us have had to be high schoolers today. And when we learn to listen and empathize, when we learn to put ourselves in the shoes and see life through the perspective of our young people, that empathy serves as a conduit to connection that allows us to grow together. The third core commitment is Jesus' message. 
that we want to take Jesus' message seriously. That this isn't about some formulaic process to get into heaven someday, but it's also about this invitation for us to live this Jesus-centered way of life now, to invite God's kingdom to come here and now, not just someday. The next one is this idea of warm relationships. We want to have relational warmth. We want this church to feel more and more like a family. There are a lot of churches who are doing cool and hip things. That's great. They're doing, they're doing good work. But our end goal isn't that we are cool or hip. It's that we want to be warm. We want to be a place uh, that welcomes and loves, that's hospitable to people. This is the easiest one. You can walk out of here today and you can smile at someone and introduce yourself to someone you don't know. This is the easiest one for you to start doing immediately. This relational warmth. Smile at someone. The next one is this idea of prioritize everywhere. We want to prioritize young people and families everywhere so that these families and these young people know that we are coming alongside of them and that we want to journey with them through life. And the last one is that we want to be the best neighbors. We want to be the best neighbors. When people are in need, we want Flint Central to be the first place that they think of that they can come to and people will come alongside of them and walk with them and help them. This is a little bit what we talked about last Sunday with the in Flint. That we don't want to be a church that condemns the world outside of these walls, but we want to be a church that embraces and loves the world. And all of these things are great. These six core commitments are great and important, and they're going to help us uh, as we continue in this journey of, of being more intergenerational and engaging and re-engaging young people. But here's the big thing. These are great, but at the center of this circle is this. A Jesus-centered community. That these six things are great and they're going to be helpful. But without this main core commitment of Jesus and being a Jesus-centered community, these six things can easily become distractions that keep us from our main thing. But when we start with Jesus, we allow everything to follow and flow with proper alignment. I've said a few times now that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And I'm actually going to walk that back just for a second. And I'm going to say this. The resurrection of Jesus has the potential to change everything. See, the resurrection loses its power when we just see it as some transaction that happened thousands of years ago so that someday we can go to heaven. But the resurrection of Jesus has the potential to change everything as we are a people who embody that resurrected life, as we live in light of the truth that Jesus is risen. And as we live in that way, Jesus' resurrection can transform us and transform our church and transform the world. Jesus' resurrection can change everything. There's a theologian I like to listen to and follow, and one of the reasons I like to listen to him is he's Irish, and he's got a great accent so I could listen to him all day. But he tells this parable. And it's important to you that I I, I make sure you know it's a parable so you don't send me angry emails in a few minutes. But a parable is a story that's not necessarily true, but it aims to teach us something. So this is one of his parables. He says he died. And when he got to heaven, there is St. Peter who is standing there who welcomes people into heaven. Uh, And St. Peter says, hey, welcome, come on in. 
And he says he's about to step into heaven. And he looks behind him. And he sees some of his friends. Some are drug addicts. Some are atheists. Some are God knows what. And he says, what about them? And St. Peter said, well, you know the rules. He says as he stood there, he thought about his anchor point. Jesus. Jesus, the companion of the tax collector. Jesus, who ate with prostitutes. Jesus, who was the friend of sinners. And as he stood there, he looked at St. Peter and said, you know what? I'm just going to stay out here. In that parable, he said that St. Peter got this big smile on his face and said, finally, you get it. That God so loved the world that he forsook the privilege and the comfort of heaven that he would come to earth, that he would be light to the darkness, that no man would perish, that he could love the world and love the people of the world, that he could be light to the darkness. He was speaking at a conference and he says at the end of the conference uh, there was a Q&A time where people could ask questions. And he said someone raised their hand and said, you know... You've been talking a lot, but I haven't heard you say a lot about the resurrection. He said, do you deny the resurrection? So he said he was thinking to himself, do I deny the resurrection? Well, I guess I better be honest. He said, of course I deny the resurrection. He said the room got really awkward, kind of like it is right now. Really quiet. And he said, every time I see someone who is in need and I turn my head, I deny the resurrection. Every time I participate in unjust systems, I deny the resurrection. Every time there is someone who is grieving and I don't want to get into the mess, I don't want to be uncomfortable, every time I do that, I deny the resurrection. But he said, every time I see someone who is in need and I can help with what I have, I affirm the resurrection. Every time I fight for justice, I affirm the resurrection. Every time I'm able to come alongside of someone who is grief and be be an agent of peace and comfort, I affirm the resurrection. Every time I live my life in this Jesus-centered way of life, I affirm the resurrection. See, my prayer and my hope for us as a church is that we can live our lives in a way that affirm the resurrection that our lives, the actions, the things that we do would be living affirmations of the resurrected king. And I don't know how you sit, where you sit today, but I know that the beauty of the resurrection is if you have been a Christian for 80 years, but you recognize that the resurrection for you is more just something that happened, Or if you're sitting here today and you have never accepted Jesus, you've never been a follower of Jesus, you've never lived in light of this resurrection, the resurrection isn't about looking back over your life with guilt and regret. But the resurrection is this constant invitation to live into this resurrected life, to be this resurrected people, to live in a new way today. God, I pray that for each of us individually and for us collectively, that we would live lives in light of your resurrected Christ. We thank you for this time together. Go and move among us in powerful ways. It's in your name we pray.